Premium Hoops presents Sense and Scalability. Sense and Scalability. Welcome back, everybody. We are joined today by Evan and Cody, who you all know and love. But we also have a special guest on today by the name of Prospect Development Web, PD Web for short. PD, it's a pleasure to have you on. We're going to have a great conversation about development and philosophy. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, honored to be here in the, the fanciest podcast intro on the game. We really appreciate that. I have a soft spot for Pachelbel's Canon in D major always. Um, so that's really nice to hear. Evan, how are you doing? Doing great, Scott. I had a pretty relaxed day at work. Uh, I was telling Cody about it before. I basically shit posted from 7.45 to 2 p.m. Um, you know, I did some work in there, of course, as is tradition, but it was a pretty, we'll call it a pretty relaxing day. So, you know, I'm coming into the podcast with great energy. Uh, we have a fantastic guest. Um, so I'm, I'm ready to get started. Cody, what's up? I actually need to start by issuing a... Uh, an apology and a correction from the last podcast. So at one point I quoted my partner in the uh, box plot stat that I brought up and then I was excited about it. So I played her the segment from the podcast and she was obviously very excited to have been quoted on a podcast, but then she's like, you do know it's not called a box and plot. It's just a box plot. And I'm like, I am a moron. So for all of you stat nerds out there, which I know you all are, I'm very, very sorry. I know what a box plot is. Were you possibly thinking of a box and one, um, and you got them mixed up? Let's go with that. That makes me sound a lot more intelligent than just being excited and adding a random and in the middle there. I'm very excited for the box and one plot podcast where we explore basketball analytics, you know, for, for beginners. <laughs> a talk podcast for people who like to talk about graphs while they yes. talk about ball or look at graphs while they talk about ball. This is not a great hour for the box and one um, as a Nick nurse disciple. Uh, team is currently in shambles in the Indiana Pacers, um, but we're not going to really talk about them. We're going to talk about more, you know, younger players. The draft is obviously coming up and obviously it's always draft season for you. Um, and you just had an article come out called pre-drafting. You actually had a write up for pro insight as well. Uh, did a stream about it on Twitch um, and I like to think it's a fairly novel concept in a landscape that kind of sees a lot of rehashes of the same ideas, um, among draft discourse. Uh, so I just want to kind of give it to you to begin with, uh, how do you define pre-drafting and what was kind of like, uh, how'd you come about formulating that article, that theory, that idea? Um, I think that. I formulated pre-drafting um, suffering from sort of like the short-term disease that the uh, drafting makes you have where you worry about, you know, one year and then the other and then the other. And as players, you know, go through the pre-draft process, um, some of them return next year. It's like, well, they're going to be a top 20 pick next year if things go well. It's like, well, what if you just drafted them this year, knowing that they were probably going to be good next year? And that's essentially what pre-drafting is, is finding players who um, have extremely volatile stocks or extremely volatile uh, development curves 
where you can get them, you know, at pick 30, 45, 50 um, this year, or you could wait a year and have them be a top 10 or top 15 pick. Like, you know, there are definitely teams that could have promised James Boatnight to come out last year. Um, a, a guard out of UConn, he came back and had a fantastic year, and now he's going to be a lottery pick. And I'm sure there's a team who probably could have promised him at like slot 25 last year and and oversaw an extra year of development, which is sort of the buried um, treasure here is that not only do you get a, a, a basically a lottery pick on layaway, you also get to determine how you'd like them to d- develop towards the pro game in a pro system with, you know, pro staff working on them versus, you know, a college system, which isn't necessarily the same development ideas or philosophy as the pros. A lot of the draft is predicated on like when teams see production that ends up being kind of what shoes these pre-draft guys into, you know, being a lottery guy. Like um, that seems like more of a symptom where maybe some things were already there. Some indicators were already there, but teams for, for whatever, for whatever reason, feel the need to like have to see the results before they can buy in. Um, What are kind of the indicators uh, that you see or statistical or otherwise that kind of make you think, Oh, this is a pre-draft guy. I think that you're generally looking for uh, a player with creation upside. Um, part of the the value for pre-drafting players is like, there are guys who certainly would be benefited from being in the NBA early, but they're um, a, you know, a tertiary role where even if they have a good season, they're still not going to be a first rounder or, you know, there's not, uh, an outlay of draft capital going to be required for them. So finding players who um, have really interesting, like small sample stats, uh, like Benedict Matherin is, is probably one of the easier ones from this year who shot basically 50, 40, 90. Um, and just going back to school. And like, to me, he's an easy first rounder because guys who shoot 50, 40, 90 uh, at a high major school and produce um, are going to most likely do that again. Um, so now you have two years of development often you look for players who don't have like RSCI favoring. So like you can have a bad year and still be a one and done if you were considered like a top 10 or top 25 prospect in high school. But for players who maybe didn't have that initial uh, grounding or initial bias, even if they have a good year, they still can't rise to one level because this is to their first year of observation for, for many draft analysts or for teams. So by recognizing that bias and being like, okay, so this guy, like Jabari Walker, who's weirdly the son of Samaki Walker, um, had a really good freshman year, but he wasn't really considered. He was considered like a three or four star kid out of high school. So teams just hadn't seen him enough. And when you look at his advanced stats, it's uh, it looks like the profile of a guy who uh, has a lot of events on defense, um, shoots a really high percentage around the rim, has a, a very projectable jumper and, and good small sample size jumper, and simply just has to play more. And if you're looking at that and you're like, okay, if this guy plays 40% more minutes, he's an automatic first rounder, but right now he's undraftable. So let's just shoot the Delta of that and assume that we can make him play more and give him, you know, those, those shooting reps to, to confirm our initial concerns without investing that much. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing how much you see like prospects, I guess, um, 
the assessments on prospects anchor to their RSCI, anchor to the school they went to, anchor to their their draft position when they do eventually get drafted. Um, and it's something that these organizations like are definitely keeping in mind regularly. And so like I think it's important when you say like looking for guys who maybe don't have that RSCI stock who have produced in short stints but haven't really shown it in high minutes or are missing a swing skill or something like that. Like those are the kinds of guys that you're looking for. Just like you said, it, it almost seems so obvious like in retrospect, obviously after you wrote the article, um, the idea that, I mean, we talk about these guys every year. There, there's always guys that are like one swing skill away. Um, and if the swing skill hits, their NBA stock is more or less locked locked in. You know, maybe it's lotto, maybe it's first round. Um, but if you think you can develop that swing skill, then why not do it? You take them early for less less investment and do it yourself. So kind of my question on, in, in this vein is, is there a specific skill that you think is ideal, like a specific swing skill that you'd be looking for in these prospects that you think is ideal to develop in an NBA environment, uh, as opposed to leaving it to the college to either develop or not develop? Um, I think there's only one or two skills I wouldn't prefer NBA teams, um, handle during like a, like what we would consider like, you know, a, a, a year before drafting or, or, you know, pre-draft sample. Um, and that's like reps. If you just have a guy who just has never really had, like he's playing a new role like i would like to see him in college but basically everything else like i would rather have a prospect play in nba spacing i'd rather have them have nba shooting development i'd rather have them have nba movement skills like to me the only time that i would really want them to go back to college is if they were just lacking in um not necessarily feel but just enough data where it's like have if they're moving into a new role it can be difficult to go move into a new role and move up a level at the same time. If you want them to be a, you know, a primary creator and they've never done it before asking them to go from, you know, being a secondary creator at a college level to a primary for a G league team is a really, really steep incline. So that might be the only time everything else that makes like, to me, I would rather have them in the league. Um, Another like small, it's a smaller group, but I think it's an important group is guys who do have RSCI um, cache and have been observed for a number of years but have a swing skill that um, may not be favored in college. So like JT Thor is an example. Um, He's going into a situation where there's like his college situation next year is going to be very strange. They basically like he's, he's going back to Auburn. They have a player who's roughly his archetype and another big. So he might be playing the three, even though he's most likely a four in the league. He needs to work on shooting, but he also needs like a little bit of a feel inducement. Like it's a situation where, Rather than saying, okay, his stock may go up, it may go down, and putting it out of somebody else's hands, um, which is sort of the NBA's policy, is that like having, you know, this extra time where you don't have to pay players and can, you know, uh, let somebody else uh, take the developmental risks to be like, okay, so this to me is worth the investment, not necessarily to save them, but to have the opportunity to dictate the players around them so you can build a, a walled garden for them to develop, whether it's for a year or two years or three years. Something that I actually want to clarify from earlier what you said, uh, you said one of the main indicators that you look for early on for one of these pre-draft candidates is creation, uh, and then you followed it up by citing uh, a player's 50-40-90 shooting splits. So I want to clarify, when you say creation, are you talking about self-generated uh, offensive creation, or are you talking about being able to create for players around him, or are you just talking about creation in general, where whether it's creating for yourself or your teammates? 
Um, yeah, I think that I'm using creation as a shorthand for the ability of an NBA team to fall in love with them. So like an archetype where an NBA team is like, oh, this is a shooter. Like shooters can go up to like, you know, top 10 now just because they can really shoot. I mean, we saw uh, Aaron Neesmith go 14th last year. He didn't necessarily have um, like a, a broad creation profile, but like we're trying to find players a year before they blow up and finding some some pitch that an NBA team would have. I mean, creation is sort of the easiest one because you see creators have the, the greatest variance um, from year to year where guys can go from completely off the radar, like John Morant's freshman year, who like would have been an ideal pre-draft candidate considering his fan stats. But he plays, like he, he is within an archetype that if you do well enough, you can basically, like there's no floor or there's no ceiling on where you, how high you can rise. Or bigs, unless you meet very specific thresholds, like if you are a shooter, if you have the ability to uh, create space defensively and close down space defensively, there is a limit on how NBA teams will take you. So in that circumstance, like we are looking for like a broad sense of creation, whether it's for themselves or for others, but we're mostly just looking for an, like the pitch being if certain things unfold, would an NBA team really fall in love with this person and potentially take them to the top 15? And it seems like most often for pre-draft candidates, just reading JT Thor, uh, I guess Mathurin's already a good shooter, but then you have Kadaria Richmond. Um, these are all guys who seem like like everything but shooting type prospects, where it's like um, you have you know the a baseline of feel of tools, all that good stuff, motor, um, and it's just you fix one simple thing, which is not simple, and we'll get to how complicated it is in their jump shot, and all of a sudden it unlocks. Um, kind of all the other things that they've shown, but are kind of locked away in a treasure chest until basically that shot can be respected. Is that your experience? What most pre-draft guys fall into the bucket of? Yeah. I think that it's also pretty universally agreed upon though. Like the NBA is good at solving shooting. Like it's obviously there are guys that the NBA never taught to shoot, but like Damari Carroll took 17 threes his senior year of college. PJ Tucker was not a shooter in Texas. Like it may not be, you you may not be able to go to from where Damari Carroll 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 was at Missouri to like, you know, where Dame is, but there is a wide swath of potential improvement just from guys who we would consider non-shooters. So I think that what we're looking for is is sort of holding up the theory of the player and saying if they have a 20, 30, 40% top or I should reverse that if they have a, you know, a 70, 80, 90th percentile increase in, in shooting or even like the threat of shooting, what does this player turn into? And I think that you have to, every team that, um, uh, that I've talked to about this has their own ideas about what they can fix and what they can't fix and what they believe their strengths and weaknesses are. And so they will hold their own ideas and their team construction up to this. So if a team really believes they can, Soft shooting, like a player like Kadar Richmond should be a first rounder full stop. Like you want to get him on the the seven year deal as soon as possible where, you know, a player like, uh, like Jabari Walker might be more of a a second round guy just because of how the contracts play out and, and deciding what that first two years look like. I mean, there are a lot of nuances within this, but the idea is to try to find the thing that you think you can fix because suddenly you have a free first rounder if you do that or a free lottery pick or a free top 10 pick. And you kind of speaking of shooting, go into like how there's multiple kind of branches off into like separate parts of shooting in your, uh, 
non-dogmatic shooting philosophy, NDSP for short. It's some of our favorite things we read in the past year. Uh, and I guess you get this question a lot, but um, you talk about how it's kind of a domino effect where it's like, oh, uh, the foot works off. So all of a sudden everything else, it kind of bleeds into everything else and makes the overall shot less efficient. Um, and I, I actually uh, had a question um, because we had a conversation about a similar topic uh, on our second episode discussing Evans feel article. And I was trying to make the point that I had heard from this, from an Australian coach at summer league named Mason Rogers. And he was like talking about how it might be more beneficial to improve someone's catch and shoot percentage um, by not having them just repeat through that catch and shoot shot in a perfect setting in an empty gym, but rather, you know, do specific exercises like the weird ones in that article, uh, the weird ones that Chip England has people do, the weird ones that Holger Dirk's trainer has people do. Uh, that kind of helps refine the core mechanics more than doing the catch and shoot shots. Um, and I just, I, 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 I agreed with that. I believe that to be true, but I couldn't quite explain why. So I think what this article did is it came out right after that. And I was like, okay, okay. It, it framed it in a way that made me, made it really easy for me to understand why doing these weird stuff could be better than just having someone take a hundred shots a day or whatever from a standstill. Um, where do you kind of fall on that? Is, is it better to teach catch and shoot shooting through these weird exercises, despite kind of conventional wisdom? I think conventional wisdom has changed in the past 25 years because it doesn't conventional wisdom doesn't work. Like what I was raised on does not really work. Otherwise there would be no bad shooters. Like the conventional wisdom is based on the idea that a lot of guys don't work. That like, if you simply just do this one weird trick, which is lock yourself in a gym and take the same shot a hundred thousand, 200,000, a million times, you will eventually get good at it. And, um, like if you have a video game controller and you partially cut one of the wires, it's not going to work. It doesn't matter how many times you hit the button. It will not work because it's partially, you know, uh, the connections do not connect. And the philosophy of self-organization is that like people aren't bad shooters because they can't shoot a basketball. Hoop. So the translation from the idea of doing something to the effectiveness of it is not translating. So instead of jamming the buttons more, you get some tape or you buy a new controller or you figure out how you can cover that hole in a specific way that will make the buttons work every time. So I think that when you see guys who have really funky forms that still shoot funky, it's not because they repped it out. It's because they connected the problems. I mean, I use TJ Warren as an example and Brandon Ingram examples in the first NDSP because like both of them still shoot weird. Like I would say that both of them still shoot in a way that is not, uh, you know, the perfect way, but they've, started to solve the energy translation and proprioception issues that plagued them when they were in college, when they were first in the league. And that wasn't through 
reps necessarily because like there's no way to rep yourself into getting better energy transfer. It's by solving the biomechanical and neuromuscular issues that are at heart to basketball. So the way I think of it now after, you know, reading that is you use the example of like the domino effect of like one thing can throw the entire chain off. Um, It seems like instead of just trying to solve all the dominoes at once, which is basically what repetition, uh, what the jamming the controller that doesn't work over and over again, what that is, is trying to solve all the dominoes at once. Whereas if you can do these weird drills, if you can put yourself in weird situations, you're focusing on each individual domino. And even though um, it might seem like it doesn't directly apply to the bigger picture, um, it seems like you train a lot more efficiently by isolating each mechanic of your jumper and trying to find weird ways to uh, refine that. Yeah. I mean, I think that the the core idea is that like, so like shooting in, you know, in volume is what we would call like block training is that like, it doesn't actually connect to the experience of shooting in a game. Like shooting in a game, you never get to shoot twice. And like, you rarely get to shoot twice in a row within three seconds, especially threes. It's just not, it is not a game-like circumstance. And what is a game-like circumstance is having to backpedal a little bit into your shot, setting your feet, making sure you're catching it in bounds, especially if you have big feet that can be a little bit of you know trouble, making sure you're lined up correctly, making sure you can shoot it in time that closing out has happened. So like, to me, it's not that like, you know, shooting out of what we would say like funky footwork or shooting out of like these movement ideas or, or where you have to quickly self-organize and, and prioritize your movements. That's not weird, but the idea that like you just do the same thing with no inputs, with no, um, with no ignition source, like the same thing over and over again. The idea that that will fix a extremely complex problem with a very like simple solution is the problem. Is that like we need to dispel the idea that like just simply doing the same thing over and over again will work because like. Otherwise, there would have been great shooters in the 90s. Like all of them, all the bigs eventually learned to shoot. It was not a problem of volume. It was a problem of application. And I think what I like so much about the NDSP series is that, like you guys have kind of taught, touched on so far, it's not a, an observation of the disparate um, or, 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 you know, the, the entire process of a jump shot as a whole, the macro of a jump shot as a whole, it, it treats jump shooting as a system and the skill development around that system needs to engage the part of the system that isn't functioning properly. Um, the example that you gave in, I think it was NDSP, I want to say was the, the Steve Kerr workout example, I think where, um, he's, I think they they had him like sit on the on the sidelines and like read the paper and then he had to step in and and take shots like cold and then yeah. he would go back sit on the bench read the paper again basically um and I think the opposite example of that would be like when people would talk about DeAndre Jordan fixing his free throw mechanics like in in that sense you're you're even taking out kind of the jump portion of, of the jumper and isolating to more of the, the power transfer in the upper body, because you know, you're, it's a stationary shot. But if, if the old adage and the old theories about shooting development and about skill development as a whole, not just shooting were true, then you would think, like you said, that Deandre Jordan would sit in the gym, rep out free throws, and eventually he'd be a better free throw shooter. But even in an isolated shot, like a free throw. And I think Dwight, like taking warm up threes is a different example. If you, if you want to talk about a night, non-isolated example, like, 
the reps were not enough for him to fix the problem. And that's like an uncontested shot, like with no jump. So I, I think that there's always been a problem with kind of how we talk about skill development and, and jump shooting is a perfect example of how a, a perfect example to dissect that theory with, because there are so many old tropes about how you're supposed to shoot when in the reality, I love that you touched about jump or, you know, talked about jump shooting more like each jump shot can be different, but as long as the parts work together and the theory is sound, it, it works. And it, I think about it like building a cart in Mario Kart. Now in the new Mario Karts, you can swap out a different body, swap out different wheels. Um, I think a glider. Um, and there will be different performance, um, I guess, offshoots from what you decide. Um, but at the end of the day, like if you build the cart thoughtfully, you will get to the finish line faster than everybody else. To me, jump shooting is a little bit like that. And so um, I love what you started with NDSP, and I hope that we can start looking at other skills in that way too. Like at the micro level, what part of a skill do you need to fix? Is it power transfer for your jumper or is it like the upper body mechanics and arm alignment? Um, So I don't really have a question or anything. I just wanted to say like, I think NDSP is a pretty gold standard for how we should look at skill development. Um, And it's not about the macro. Like you have to, every player is so unique. You have to break it down to the micro, to the little bits and, and solve the problem at its core um, and and not try to treat everything at once. I was going to say, I actually have a follow-up question about that. And please tell me if this is out of bounds of what you want to talk about. But um, I do think it's an interesting application when I'm thinking of somebody's skill level. But when we're thinking about shooting and development at this high level, what would you tell, say, like a uh, a high school player who's not necessarily a strong shooter, who doesn't have access to different trainers that or coaches that are going to be able to help him? What would you tell uh, a high school player that's trying to train on his or her own just their shooting development? Is it just not taking these multiple repetitions or should they be kind of challenging themselves with some of these weird motor patterns and things like that? I mean, I, uh, in the life before we all lived inside forever, uh, I, I did work with, with high schoolers and and that's very much my background. And, uh, I've found with high schoolers that there is a limit on block training and that finding, um, the, the movement patterns that work for you. So like for skinny guys, I mostly work with, with men's basketball players um, for skinny guys. Like I find that the hop works better because it forces the posterior chain to get activated. So figuring out like, okay, if you're going to shoot on the hop, let's, let's try to challenge your movements, get the hop so you can get into the shot easier and get more power, which again is the biggest problem for skinny guys generally, which most of basketball is. So I would say that for players who um, are time limited and, and, you know, don't necessarily have eight hours a day to, to be in a gym that the best thing that they can do is still take a volume of shots, but then mix in a diet of these more challenging movement patterns. So that way they can get more out of the volume they do take because like at after a certain point, like there is not a value to shooting when you're like, when your arms are sore, when your jumper breaks down, everything past that point is damaging for some people. That's an hour in the gym. For some people, it's 90 minutes in the gym for other people. That's three hours in the gym. But like once you're past that point, you're damaging your shot. So because you're just not repping what you do. So I would say to find the appropriate amount of shots to take and then everything else beyond that should be reinforcement and working on, you know, these uh, perception action coupling ideas that that work on reinforcing uh, the things that actually happen in game and less of, of these block shooting mechanics. And we kind of talked about how we hope that this is a jumping off point for people to kind of 
question themselves and think more critically about shooting development. Uh, you had a quote in NDSP that I think Cody brought to my attention that says, I believe there is a deep-seated problem with the future of basketball writing. We are fast approaching a world where many, many bright people have fantastic theories about the pathways forward for players, for teams, and for the game. But there is a foundational lacking in their ability to translate the gulf between radical academic ideals and radical day-to-day action. And I think, I really think that's (laughs) never more true than when like people are trying to, I mean, I I do this all the time. Uh, They try to like appraise a prospect's development and they, or like shooting development and they use the disclaimer, I'm no shot doctor, but (laughs) so I definitely am guilty of that. Uh, Let's say I wanted to become a quote unquote shot doctor. Uh, Where, what would your guide be to people who are curious about this blind spot that a lot of us have um, in trying to identify what should be fixed? What's encouraging for a jump shooter? I think that um, there is a basketball archipelago that there's so many insular little worlds within the game that don't necessarily overlap. Like there are people who don't really know X's nose and what it requires is, is an uncomfortable period where you have to, you know, learn what get is and, you know, learn the footwork with required for closeouts and, you know, why teams are doing this and why teams are doing that. And it requires, you know, a humbling of yourself of, of like learning how much you don't know, which happens all the time. But there are also these really fantastic communities of people who, you know, upload videos of their training sessions with high school and college players. And are, it's there. It's a it's a resource to learn that anybody can watch and, and learn why they do it and, and really have a, uh, a relationship to the material. And there's basically like 25 different basketball archipelagos. And one of the things that I've really wanted to do with you know, my work since I've sort of started is connecting those pieces together. In the same way that, like, you know, cap nerds didn't really use to interact with team building people until they did. And, you know, I, I feel like we're reaching the game, the point where a lot of people are starting to connect these archipelagos together. And, like, that's sort of the thing that I've really enjoyed in, in the past year that I've been on the basketball internet is seeing much more of that happen. And as a result, like, the this cross, this, this crossbreeding of, of these different, you know, ideologies has led to some really like fruitful products. So that kind of leads me perfectly into a question I wanted to make sure I asked. And I'm going to start with a quote from the Meta's draft strategy and pre-drafting piece because I think it transitions perfectly into kind of where I want to go with this. But the quote is, an essential part of analytics scouting staff is to convince the GM and the GM's job is to convince the owner. And I do think it's hard to convince ownership of anything really radical. I think that's at least in part... I think that's at least in part of why this meta favors the teams who win the lottery and those that are very good at development, which is basically what all of the studies I've read confirm. Um, and kind of how I interpreted this is that, you know, like we were just talking about, there, there are radical academic ideas about how we can further the study of basketball and prospect, prospect development, tactical decisions in the court, things like that. Um, but sometimes the people who think about these great ideas and who come up with these ideas don't necessarily speak the language in the way they need to, to be able to train 
translate the, those ideas into actionable directives that like players, coaches, front offices, ownership stakeholders are actually like willing to invest resources in. Um, and, and when I say resources, I specifically mean time and opportunity, but also money, like money dedicated to coaching staff, money dedicated to things like that. So I think you've already started attacking like this golf, this, uh, these gaps between all the siloed parts of basketball and especially like on Twitter. I think this is a, a big case, but uh, I think you've started already kind of like attacking this problem with your Let's Watch film series that you recently started on Twitch. Um, and I kind of just wanted to ask, like, why did you decide to delve into the live streaming medium in specific? Um, and what do you see as the next steps in bridging the gaps between like these different siloed groups? Um, and I'm thinking of like, I think one good example of a way that the gap has started to become bridged besides your Twitch series is the learn basketball course that Ben Falk and Gibson Piper do that. I know a lot of people who cover the game and, and who like to study skill development and stuff like that, um, or scouting on NBA Twitter have gotten a lot out of that because it is a way to humble yourself, to understand what you don't know and to get a start in learning those X's and O's. So, um, how, how, how much are you like in Twitch so far? Why did you choose Twitch and what do you see as the next frontier in terms of, um, bridging these disparate groups? Uh, there's a lot to unpack there. I'm excited to, to, to parse that. Um, so I think the first thing is that like, it doesn't matter if you're right or not. It matters if you can get somebody else to believe you're right. Um, I, I think about people who have, uh, made leaps and bounds from unconventional positions across sport. I mean, like Jose Mourinho is certainly one. Um, a person who didn't have a, a real playing background, but got people to buy in on his ideas. Um, granted, it was mostly through, you know, acting like Julius Caesar, but that's not particularly the point. The idea is that, like, if you are going to reach people with unconventional ideas, you need to be able to put it in, in, a, in like, both a language people understand and with, a like, a valid backing. Like, so having... Having, if, if you are coming with this from a, a radical point of view, but you also have, you know, people who you've made intense relationships with. I tell a lot of the people who cover the draft, like, hey, you should reach out to, to these high school coaches. You should reach out to, to AAU coaches. You should go to these events and build these relationships because when you do have good ideas, it's great that when the people you're pitching them to can say, well, who is this, who is this person in the community? Like who vouches for them? Are they valid or not? And I think that more than, um, more than being right. It's about like being in the right place at the right time with the right people. And like, it doesn't matter if you picked the draft order correctly and said who the 10 best people are. If no front office will listen to you, like all you've done is be mad online. <laughs> That's not particularly like good for anyone. And I think the solution is just to, to bring the community more largely together. I know that's a, a sort of uh, uh, warm and fuzzy answer. Um, but that's also like, why I wanted to do let's uh, let's watch film is the like there's this law called DCMA um, that prevents people from watching basketball together online. And so if a person wanted to watch basketball with a coach, with, you know, an analyst, with, with somebody who's, you know, has, has made this their life, they want to take the next step from being, you know, from viewer to, to active participant in the back the basketball community. You basically have to know one and you have to get them to spend two hours with you because DCMA won't let, you know, uh, you know, uh, assistant coaches and, and division two uh, GAs and like the people in the basketball center who are just begging to, to be heard 
because there's so many of them and so many bright people in basketball. Um, and DCMA just doesn't let you do that. And so what I was hoping to do with this series was to build a product that would beat that particular copyright law by making something that was uh, very time intensive. And boy, uh, yeah, those are um, editing film is not a uh, time light process. And so what I was hoping to do was to, to have something that every level of, of basketball buy-in, I don't don't know the right way to say this, but like people who are, you know, casual fans all the way up to, you know, people who work in a front office or or work on court, like could get something from, and it is accessible. There is an access point for everyone. And because of the way that, that these laws are are in our country, that's around our world, that's really hard. And so my hope for this was to give something for everybody where, you know, look, the one with, the one with me and Henry Ward might be a little too draft termy for you. Okay, here's one with Nikaias. Here's one with the next people we have. And it can be an access point for people to to gather and, and maybe watch the game and get a little more from each interaction so they don't have to watch as much. They can get more information from, from each moment. That was that was the goal for the series. Uh, how I'm liking it is that it's very nerve-wracking. Um, I'm, I'm continuing to tinker with it. Um, definitely uh, difficult to spend the first five minutes doing audio sorting, which is something I've just ended up having to do every time. It's being like, Oh, let's, let's figure out how to edit this. Um, but I've had a really, really positive experience. And I think that uh, it's, it's been well received, I guess, um, which makes me happy. And I think the cool thing about it is we all like anybody who covers the league in some capacity um, or, you know, lower levels, has their kind of strategies, their habits for watching film. I remember uh, last year you tweeted, how do people timestamp clips? Do they uh, download them as they go? Do they write them down for later? Um, Has there been any kind of revelations or interesting things from just watching film (laughs) with other, you know, smart minds and not having the opportunity to, and being like, Oh, you kind of do that a little different than me. Yeah, uh, I have I have some people coming up who watch film on like the plus minus system, uh, which was a system that I was uh, like in high school was raised on, but like very much do not enjoy now uh, because my mind really hates binaries, uh, as you may have noticed from this podcast so far. You know, if you're my general awareness of me as a as a person. Um, so, like, I think that the thing that I learn is that like. Like the, the way that the process actually works is like I, I I try to find like a normal game for the player. I try to not pick their best one. I try to not pick their worst one. Just like the in the notes I wrote, the gamest game I can find. Um, like if if it, if you know for Garuba it was difficult because like sometimes he doesn't shoot a, shoot, and that's just not particularly enjoyable television. Be like, here's him not shooting again. So I picked one where he shot a little bit more. But like I'll say I'll, I'll you know DM the person and be like, okay pick out five, 10 clips that you really want to talk about. And like a, a brief description of why, so I can start to find the, the micro skills to, to cut in between. And like, uh, not once have we had the same five to 10, like every time they're different and their explanations are always interesting. Cause I'm like, just try to find the ones that you're like, are the most essential. And sometimes they'll just, I'll ask like, Oh, I picked this one for the same one. Why didn't you like this one? And they're like, Oh, I, you know, the, the help side defender was a little too high and I didn't thought it, 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 it was the point. Just like, getting into these really deep weeds things that like are the reason why this is hard to talk about. Like why you can't do it on a podcast is because like explaining why I didn't like this X out because actually the weak side guy slips and it's not a great example. 
like that's that's the real joy of it and that's also like why this medium is is the essential one to me and why it's been difficult for you know it to take off is that you can do small things but you can't watch a full game and being able to, to do like you know uh play selection has just been uh it's been a, a very joyful frustration i think that you you kind of had this um <laughs> i don't want to say like rant because it wasn't quite rant it was a little bit more measured than that but you talked about how it's so easy to kind of cherry pick clips and i think a lot of us um, have kind of resonated with our followers by using clips and twitter to prove our points and in our articles as well um but i kind of like to hear your critique on that on the timeline um what do you think the pros and cons are of kind of this clip to prove my quick point uh, kind of exchange we're doing at the moment, probably with the, you know, Twitter and all that. So um, yeah, uh, basketball Twitter has changed my life. Um, Especially with rookies. It's really easy because like all rookies are bad, like full stop, like rookies, like with the exclusive, exclusion of like just all-time greats are not helpful they're just not and so like you're trying to find levels within bad and so you can kind of because we're talking about like oh he's he's a 35th percentile nba player versus like a 27th any one clip you can pull like is probably going to prove the point that you want because like we're so deep into nuance and projection that like it's not particularly meaningful um, like I could very easily have pulled clips that make Isaac Okoro look like God, like, because I had them, but like they were because I watched like 10 games. And in, if I'm using 10 clips across 10 games, like I can find you 10 good moments because he's an NBA player. Um, I think that part of that is just the nature of the rapport you have with your audience. Understanding that like part of the agreement if people are going to like read my work, which is like long and, and uh, I imagine difficult for a lot of people to get into just cause like there'd be a lot of it. Um, part of the agreement is like, I won't do that to you. Like, yes, I'm not writing for like part of this is like the, the cachet that you have writing for a network is the idea. Like you wouldn't mislead people. Granted it doesn't always work that way. Um, no, but that's sort of the idea. Um, so I think that like, that's sort of the agreement that we have to make as analysts is that like, we're doing the best we can and trying to tamp down our biases by showing an even picture. And that's partially why like the work is a little bit longer for me is because I don't want to leave anyone with the, with a picture that's not nuanced and nuance either requires length or just like being just like getting the most like chef's kiss of clip selection. Um, but yeah, you can kind of do anything with, with three or four clips. But by building long-term relationships with with uh, your audience, by building long-term relationships with the people, you can sort of buffer against it because it's like, you know, uh, the last thing I'd want to do is is have somebody come through and be like, I watched that game and he was garbage except for the one play you picked out. Um, and then I've, you know, lost all this that I've worked so hard for. So yeah, I mean, it's a lot of its own personal accountability, but it's also like, it would be a cheat to the grind to... Uh, I mean, it'd be an insult to the, like, not just the industry, but like to the game itself to, to be like, yeah, I lied about Dar- uh, about, you know, Garland being good because I, like, I wanted the, you know, him to be really good as a rookie and it later came on as a sophomore. It's like, well, just tell the story you can and, and 
if it takes a little while longer to to dunk on your haters on Twitter, like it takes six months, then he has a, a shooting breakout in the second year and suddenly he looks better. And like, isn't it better not lying than what you would have got during his rookie year? I really I, like that point because I think about it in terms of uh, these are actually some of the same skills that every one of you was taught in English class in high school, where you have to clip different quotations to try and prove a point about a theme in a book. And you see that sort of uh, insincerity in some students' arguments where like, spoiler alerts for Of Mice and Men, I've had some students that were writing that are like, oh, George killed Lenny because here's this one quote on page 30 where he said he's sick of hanging out with him. And it's like, well, no, that ignores like all of the context of everything else that happens. And even though I told you to just like have two citations, that's still like an insincere way to present that evidence. And that sort of thing, I feel like on NBA Twitter, there's this kind of idea where you kind of start to know who is sincere about their work and who tries to put in as much work as possible and who you can call out. And I don't want to say call out in a negative way, but somebody who's going to respond well to being like, Hey, uh, you should probably check out a couple other sources because this one thing that you cited doesn't match with all of this other evidence. And I even brought this up in our most recent podcast episode. I think it was our most recent one where I said, how much, uh, how much is necessary to watch of a specific player? right? Like if you only watch 10% of a season, like what is happening in the other 90%, but 10% of a season is still eight games. Like if you're not doing this full time, that's going to take up a lot of your time. So I think it's necessary to have that. Uh, like you just said, you, you have this rapport and conversation back and forth with each other and how NBA Twitter in its best case can improve everyone's analysis abilities. Well, and this is such like, I, I want to kind of draw this back to a different example from my background, because I think that's a really good one. And what I'm kind of conceptualizing is that this is a push and pull exercise in a lot of different fields for a lot of different reasons. So the example I'm thinking of is basically like the the cultural or scientific community crisis of statistical significance and the cutoff of statistical significance. So like for anyone who doesn't know, or it's been a while since you've taken stats, when you're hypothesis testing, you generally draw like, and I'm going to explain this like total shit and somebody with a good stats background should absolutely tear me a new one or teach me in the DMS. That would be nice too. But, um, you, you draw essentially a cutoff at which, um, under that, that level, um, you are, are, saying that it is unlikely that this result is due to chance. And above that level, you're saying it's it's likely or more likely this result is due to chance. And so um, the data can be massaged and manipulated in ways that your, your goal is not to determine whether or not your hypothesis is correct. It is to ensure that your hypothesis is numerically proven to be correct. And I think sometimes, I don't always think it's a willful um, I guess, decision to massage clips to prove a point. Like, but I do think sometimes there are cases where um, somebody who's creating content or covering a prospect or scouting for some reason um, comes in with a, a preconceived notion of how they expect things to go and they look for evidence that proves how they expect things to go. And so I think that's why it's so important that when that, you know, those of us who cover the sport and, and try to do so in a nuanced and thoughtful way, bring ourselves as up to speed as we can on the X's and O's, because that way you can be sure that the clips you're presenting are telling the story you want them to tell for the reasons you want to tell it. And not because like, I found a pretty assist. I don't care that the process is shit. Like it looks nice. And now this guy is a good passer because he makes nice looking passes. A historical push and pull would you by chance be talking about a dialectic um i think that that's the best way to explain like my clip process is trying to build a dialectic between behaviors and trends 
is like a player can shoot well, but like doing the exact same things that led them to like shoot historically poorly. And like, it doesn't matter if they make the shot to like the same bad things are happening. So therefore like it's, he's still a bad shooter or you can have the opposite happen where like a player has made a necessary change to their jump shot specifically, or, you know, it could be to anything like their approach is different, but the results are still bad. And by like cultivating that nuance and being like, okay, so here's what I think is happening. Like that's better than being like, he made five shots. Therefore good. Like, by rejecting conclusions and simply suggesting trends and behaviors that will then be adapted into more trends and behaviors. Because like, once you start shooting, okay, then you get closeouts. How are they going to deal with closeouts? Okay. So you've dealt with the closeout. Now, how are you going to deal with the second defender rotating over? Are you a good enough passer to, to make a read on the weak side? When it's a two versus one, like basketball's only clear, like basketball's only binary is wins and losses. Everything else is nuance, trends, behaviors, and a dialectic. And by trying to extract from nuance binaries, you're always going to have like corrupted data, to, to put it in, in an extended metaphor. And I think that like it's fine to be like, this guy played well for these like couple of weeks because this stuff sort of happened. We'll see if he continues it, which like to me is what the Youth Summit series is. It's just being like, this is what's happening. Could be good, could be bad. This is where we are. This is where I've seen him. Like, does this mean that he's screwed as a prospect? No, because I've seen wild turnarounds. Does this mean that, you know, uh, like Mello is, is a Hall of Famer because he's playing as well? It's like, no, like we've seen similar things, but we can point to historical trends and behaviors and data and, and try to, you know, see how those things will interact in the future. And that leads us perfectly into talking about our youth summit and about how you don't always, like I said, don't always look at like the results, the wins, the losses, the immediate production when kind of appraising where rookies are at and where they could be. Um, I remember guys, you remain relatively high on uh, despite, you know, an up and down season uh, Pokushevsky. Um, I want to ask him about him really quickly because in your draft reaction article, uh, you were not a fan of the OKC Thunder fit. Whereas maybe a lot of people were like, oh yeah, let's just plop him in OKC. They're going to lose. Let him make a bunch of mistakes. Um, what could go wrong? You know, that can only be good for him. But you talked about kind of the lack of organizational structure and how, you know, there could be a point where that structure or those guardrails would be good for Poku. Um, how have you kind of, are, are, do you still feel that way? How has your attitude kind of changed on that? Yeah, um, I think that, my uh, concern is, you know, new head coach, a roster that aside from like Shea wasn't really particularly nailed down. Um, there wasn't necessarily a plan and Poku more than any prospect basically ever requires a plan um, in terms of where, how much G league he was going to play, how much against starters he was going to play, what position he is, what his weight room plan was. And um OKC has had a historically spotty record of development. Um, there are huge wins, like, you know, um, but I have um, some disagreements about what, like, basically I believe that OKC doesn't believe feel can be developed because what they keep doing is drafting hyper athletes and being like, we can teach them shooting. We're never going to ask them to handle the ball. And I think that that's a troubling uh, framework for Poku specifically to just have him, Shea, and hyper-athletes. Um, so that was my concern long-term. Um, I think that 
they did a good job of navigating um, his early season. Like struggles is not far enough. Uh, turmoils is probably better. Um, I, I kept a you know a minutes log of, of how long it had been since he took a free throw, and it took him to getting back like his sixth or seventh game in the G League to get a free throw um, after like twenty games in the league is insane. Um, I think that like I'm the the Shea making a star leap makes this a lot better in terms of like Shea's having one of the best self creation seasons of all time. Um, but there are, st- are still concerns both long term and short term. Uh, the one thing I've appreciated is is obviously like the confidence they have him in, in him and and how willing they are to just be like, all right, figure it out, kid. Because Poku had played like 800 senior level minutes before he became an NBA player, like across all competitions. It's um, unprecedented in terms of like his lack of experience um, for all that we talk about, like with Wiseman, Wiseman had played far more at the level we would expect the prospects would play at like by, I would say like four or five full, even though he only played three um, uh, college games than Poku had played and Poku comes at a serious physical disadvantage. But because we see Poku as high feel, he doesn't have the same, like, well, how much basketball is he actually played concerns. So I would say, uh, yeah, still a bit of a concern, but I'm I'm a little bit assayed. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of weird, honestly, with him in his rookie year because it's like, yeah, people see this kind of skinny Serbian kid making a bunch of funny plays, uh, some feast or famine plays, and it's like, oh, haha, you know, he's gonna, you never know what he's gonna do. It's almost like he's perfect for this NBA Twitter sphere we're talking about because his highlights or lowlights are all both ca- really captivating. But I do wonder if that's kind of not great in the long run that he's going to be continued to be this goofy guy with a lack of structure in OKC. Like it makes sense as a rookie, but I think the thing you kind of really tried to worry, you you focused on is having like a clear concrete uh, set of expectations that I don't know if he has right now. I actually kind of wanted to follow up on Poku. So PD, you mentioned that it's important for Oklahoma City or I guess whoever, whatever team drafts Poku, but now Oklahoma City to have a plan for him, like especially not not just in the development trajectory and what skills they want to build up and how, but what position they expect him to play, how much time he spends in the weight room and what that plan looks like. Do you have a clearer sense of what OKC's plan is with Poku and how they see him contributing in the future yet? And I only ask because I've caught some OKC this year, but it was more so when Poku was still in the G League. So I haven't really had a close eye on his rookie development so far. Does it seem like they're crystallizing towards a plan or are they still just kind of exploring the studio space? Um, I mean, I expect there to be uh, exploring the studio space towards a more refined understanding of his game for the next like 18 months. Um, I think that they definitely like are giving him um, creation opportunities, not just because that's a good way of losing basketball games, but because like he has a unique set of skills to do so. Um, I don't think that there has to be um, like right now, the basic questions are like, how much usage do you theoretically think he can handle? Um, What versatility do you want him to shoot out of and who does he defend? And like, they're asking the right questions. And that's the most I can say. That's the best I can say at this point is that like, I feel they're generally They've shaved off the stuff that I would have tried to shave off. Um, but they're also like, they're putting him in spots to make mistakes, which is really important considering how little basketball he's played. Uh, let me see the exact minutes load that he has played in this NBA year. Just using the uh, the NBA 
959 minutes in the NBA. So he, in this one year, has played more senior level basketball than he did in like the, the past like three years combined. Okay, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I'm glad that they've kind of, like you said, put him in a position to make mistakes because as I've kind of theorized in the past, both in the feel piece and just like in sense and scalability episodes as well, um, being able to make mistakes and to figure out what works for you and what doesn't and, and calibrate the application of the skills you already have and the way you apply those skills to the new level that you're playing at is always important, but especially important if you haven't played that much basketball in your life, especially high level basketball. And like, obviously Poku, like you said, is an unprecedented, unprecedented case in the sense that like you wrote in the Poku draft piece from the last draft cycle, like I'm going to paraphrase, I don't remember the exact words, but basically that it seemed like his shot chart was designed to spell out, like, get me out of here. Cause he's playing like Pathanaiko's second, second team or something like that. So it's good that they're um, allowing him to make mistakes and putting him in position to um, kind of discover what works for him and what doesn't. And like you said, the bonus is that it's going to help them lose basketball games and improve their draft position. So good to hear that they've handled Poku well so far, um, more or less, because he's one of the most interesting prospects I've ever seen and ever scouted. And I'm like enthralled to figure out what happens with his career as he comes into his own. I want to jump over to talking about uh, Halliburton because in your uh, Youth Summit 2, PD, you say that there really isn't any way to prove this, but Halliburton is better in strange situations than any rookie I can remember. And this reminded me of a passage from one of my favorite NBA articles like ever called Manu and Borges, The Infinite Chase Part 2, which is from uh, Pounding the Rock from like 2009. And talking about Manu Ginobili, uh, the author says, if being chased off your spot is one of your spots, then there's a natural follow-up. Can you then be chased off that spot? What would that even look like? And so I was thinking about that and I'm like, what is this like infinite Manu ability that you even admitted that you can't really offer evidence towards? How can, if I put you on the spot right now and say, what evidence can you point towards to look for to show that a player has this sort of ability? What would you be looking for during a game? A, B, how does a player go about actually developing this kind of skill? Okay. This is one I'm excited for because I love Juarez. Um, so, I mean, what we're really saying is like a player who can create order from chaos um, can like find the magic through ball to the striker that nobody can see to that can see the, the bounce pass between three sets of legs. Like what we're really saying is like when basketball is at its most basketball, the moment where like everything is in flux, the player who can pick out a possible future. Um, I think the only way you can do it is by playing a ton of basketball and playing a ton of basketball very free. Um, like Ricky Rubio had this ability, especially like, I mean, I watched his U16 game where he had a 50 point triple double, um, including a half court, uh, buzzer beater through like three people that he double clutched. And it's probably the best youth performance of all time. And just like in this game, you can see him like align with, the, with these weird moments that no other player can do it. And his brain is just processing it. And it's just because he's played against so many possibilities he's done the doctor strange head swivel thing and he's seen the one chance where this one pass gets through um in the pandemic it's incredibly hard to develop these things because like the one thing we can't do is get together and play basketball we can't get together and and, and talk about it um the defensive equivalent to this is is Devin Vassell 
who prevents these moments, who puts like, uh, you know, defense is forcing entropy. It's forcing events to not happen. Like it's to be like, here's the thing you're allowed to do. You are allowed to take one dribble and go towards that baseline. Everything else is out of bounds. And to, to play like the, the defensive goal is to make anti-basketball is to, to reduce somebody out of reads, to reduce them out of rhythm and say, this is the one thing you're allowed to do it. You'll do it successfully or you won't. And that is how we define this position. Like I've heard defense described as like having an, as an anti-anxiety experience where you just try to remove all of these possible bad things that could happen not to like one or two things that you're generally okay with. And like what you're describing to me is basketball joie de vivre. Like the truest expression of basketball of like, I'm going to hit the three quarter shot in this weird circumstance that's like lightly bobbled, I'm going to do all of these really weird basketball things. These are very, you know, out of the moment, making something out of nothing. And the defense equivalent of that is, is forcing something to be nothing. So when we talk about developing this sense of the ability to like on the offensive end, order chaos or on the defensive end, uh, instill chaos, I guess, um, at least for the offense, Obviously, I think in reading your your work in the past and through the discussions we've had, it's pretty obvious that um, the best the best situation to develop basketball skill is by playing basketball in the way you would expect to play it when you apply that skill full games. Um, but the pandemic pandemic is a great example. Um, and sometimes even without a global pandemic, you don't have uh, enough players to run a full a full five on five or even a three on three. So um, in terms of kind of the learning and skill development aspect of, of this ability to um, handle chaos um, research, like in my experience, at least like from my neuroscience background tends to show that like the introduction of novel variables into training paradigms can help improve the the rate and the functionality of skill acquisition because you're, you're, you're basically making the standard example weird in a way that requires the individual to solve on the fly and thus train themselves in handling chaos. Um, my question here is, what are some of the innovations you'd like to see in like tactics or skill development, drafting? Well, I guess drafting, you talk about pre-drafting. That's a good example. Or really just general roster construction. And, and I, I, I know this is a broad question that you'd like to see in terms of, um, you know, our ability to develop these things. So this starts my six-hour audiobook. Okay. So, um, I mean, I think that the answer is, is, is probably the simplest one is that like to start investigating our long-held beliefs about basketball and simply asking them to be proven. So like the big man is, is the most dominant thing. If you have a, if you have a dominant big man, that's the best form of dominance you can find. It's like, okay, prove it, prove it at every level. Um, I think that, I think that there is this uh, surveillance idea that like, once we datafy everything, we'll, you know, from, EU games up to you know every NBA game ever like we'll have clear answers and like I don't think that's necessarily true because one uh, data doesn't work that way and two um, you need an, a, a question that is as valuable as the data itself and so I think that some of the innovations I'd like to see is people trying weird stuff um, coaches are very afraid to get fired through doing weird things you can coaches are generally have ways that they are comfortable losing, but they have many more ways that they are uncomfortable winning. So I think that 
the ideas that have started to percolate through tactics. I mean, through, through basketball immersion, which is probably one of uh, the most important um, basketball organizations in the world, in my opinion, um, are the ideas like small-sided games of basically trying to get as many basketball decisions into a basketball practice as possible. Get as many game-like situations, but in the truest one where you have to make all of the decisions inherent to a game um, into into a, a you know a young player or a professional player as possible. And I think that by questioning ideas for like, okay, so how do you work on a handle? Is it by doing the move over and over again, or is it by you know uh, doing the one hundred versus three Japanese game show, uh, which I, I recommend for everybody when I get into arguments about handle, where basically to get these three Japanese soccer players and put them against a hundred eleven year olds, and they ask them to score. And they like they murder these kids, but like you see that they are actually using their their creativity to be like, okay, so I don't know how these kids are going to react. Do they bite on small fakes? Do they bite on big fakes? Do we go in the air? Like they have to do actual problem solving, and you can see that like, oh no, this is what this is what dribbling in soccer is. It's the it's finding appropriate solutions to diffuse problems. The first step is 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 understanding what the problem is and how the problem may react, and then coming up with solutions and probably messing up a lot. And this is where we get to coaches: is that if coaches are not comfortable with errors, like every coach in America wants to play fast during the offseason, and then their backup point guard turns the ball over twice in a row, and suddenly it's like, oh, let's actually slow this down. Let's run some flex because it's it's a truth that development is messy. Game like is messy, and if you're not willing to make those mistakes, if you find those like you know, uh, never trust a chef with clean hands. Like if you're not willing to get your hands dirty in these in these moments with turnovers, with mess sloppy play, um, then you're not going to do particularly well. You're just going to get the same thing you've always got, and sometimes that'll give you Kevin Durant because you drafted Kevin Durant. But other times that'll give you a player who didn't develop in your circumstance because you were doing the same old thing. What you needed to do was. Uh, you know, really weird out your practices or weird out your skill development or weird out how you looked at film. Um, I think that when it comes to drafting, uh, we have to go back to the CBA. Like we have the G league team should have an extra uh, roster spot. If they use the G league to get, bring a player up, they should get more extra roster spots. If the player you know lands on the team for multiple years, um, finding these CBA solutions to, um, encourage the developmental process. It's like, okay, you guys want to take your G league seriously. If a player plays, you know, a thousand minutes, he, you guys get an extra rock spot every three years from the G league. Suddenly people will be trying a lot more in the G league to find guys who land, not just because the contract matters, but like they unlock a roster spot. I don't care if it makes the NBA seem like it has DLC. There are real solutions to be had. And the idea that like the game is the game always feels that way until the next innovation happens and people are trying to catch up. And like, this is a copycat league. So shouldn't you be trying to be the person who everyone's copycatting <laughs> rather than the person who's like, it, the question comes down to how are you willing to get fired over being unique? And like, for me, I generally know it's yes. I have a quick question about small sided games. Um, so you talk about how you can kind of like take a distilled down application of making decisions. Um, there is something that was brought up on the book range by David Epstein, which we're all kind of fans of. Um, and it was an example in a classroom where this teacher, she is 
uh, using like word problems that apply to students' lives. And they're taking them way too literally. They're like trying to yell out the answer until, um, and until uh, the until the teacher says yes. Uh, and it seems like they're like actually trying to explore the studio space, as Evan says, but they're really doing something called rule seeking, where they're not thinking critically. They're just trying to throw stuff at the wall until they get a yes, and it sticks. So when I think of small sided games, the temptation for young players might be to like do what they know is the right thing in that system without questioning why they're doing it or how it possibly applies to basketball as a whole. Um, how do you kind of create that balance where it's not where, where you let, where, where you can have the kids see the forest for the trees and not just say, Oh, this is the rule of this game and not be able to connect it to basketball. Um, do you play video games? I do. Um, are you familiar with a concept called play conditioning? Uh, probably, uh, okay. but not <laughs> not defined. Okay. So play conditioning is the idea that the rules that you set out determine how people play. So if I'll, I'll use the Dark Souls example because it's the most obvious one. If you give somebody a shield and the shield is powerful, they're going to think that the, shield, the game is telling you to use a shield. But if you give them, say, two cool knives who hit super quick, they're probably going to say, oh, the secret is to move faster. So I'm going to try to hit a whole bunch of moves. So what I'm trying to say is that small-sided games can be reinforcing of your dogma in whichever way you choose. And it's up to the coach or the trainer or you know the front office person to design a game as willfully as possible. So like I'll, I'll explain a game that, that, uh, that I've run before that I find to be very fun. It's the, one of the better ways that I've taught pace uh, in terms of like getting up and down the floor and also one mores. It's three on two full court. No one is allowed to dribble. You have to shoot a three. And if the defense touches the ball, it's a turnover. If you shoot, you're off. And then you're like, you basically, you know, it's sort of three on two, but with three on two, two on one, but with no dribbling and the defense, if the defense touches the ball, it's a turnover. So the defense is trying to be ultra aggressive. They're selling out because all they have to do is get a small tap on the ball and they get to have it. If you score five, if the first team to five threes wins. So what this means is like, the offense is trying to fake a pass to try to get somebody leaning the opposite direction or throw passes that like they have to move two defenders at once, but they can't hold it too long. And you've essentially instilled the idea of seeking advantage and keeping advantage because all they want to do is win the game. Do they know that what we're doing is hunting one more? No, but in a game, when that exact circumstance happens and we kick it weak side, the other team X outs, and now they're seeing a three, a, a, a three on two on the weak side. They're saying, oh, if I pass fake to the top of the key and I'm in the corner, the second defender is going to run there, and then I have the one more to the wing. If I had designed the game differently, maybe that doesn't translate. But because I've engineered, the, I've, I've engineered both the rules and the play conditions to replicate the defensive alignment I want, it allows the offense to, to see um, – there's that that term again. It's it's the cognitive pairing of input, output. And so rather than saying like, oh, here's the rules, we want to play with one mores, I've said, here's the circumstances of what one mores look like. So instead of seeking rule-seeking behavior, they're seeking win conditions. And when I present the win condition that they're familiar with, they execute. They don't know that it's one mores, but they're like, wow, that really worked. And so by building the walled garden to play in, in a specific way that replicates the game conditions that trouble our team most and trouble 
um, trouble our game by building those exact circumstances and, and allowing them to play in that moment. I'm not just saying, oh, here's how you make a good decision. I'm saying, here's how you could make a good decision and you find your own way. So there's not a particular way of finding uh, uh, rule seeking because all I've done is tried to distill the moment down as far as possible so that they're allowed to play in that exact moment and find their own way forward. So I have a follow-up question with that. You're talking about setting up these drills where it's like, oh, this might be a situation that a player would see in a game. But do you think it's valuable to set up situations where a player is going to face something that they probably wouldn't see in a game? Uh, so going back to what we were saying with Halliburton developing this uh, idea of being able to thrive in randomness and chaos, what if you had like a, I don't know, like a five on six drill where it's like, all right, you're going to run the offense and the defense is going to have six players out there or do it like, oh, there's five players on offense, but there's four players on defense. Like that's probably not something, especially like the six players. That's not something you're going to see in a basketball court, but it's going to force you to to rethink the way the game is played. Is Do you think that that sort of weirdness would be valuable or is there like yeah. a point where the weirdness starts getting too weird? No, the weirdness, uh, again, a term that I would, try to shy away from because like to me like i improved my handle i mean i'm a i'm a big guard i improved my handle by playing seven on five the defense had seven and the uh and when i did a certain move a double would come i didn't know which move it was but a double would come to me so every game it would be different sometimes i would go behind the back and suddenly two of the players would be diving towards me and it taught me how to you know look up and that when i was making moves like the enforced randomness and the enforced uh, circumstances that I would face, which is like, you know, when guards turn their back, you bring a double or like you can build the circumstances that are as targeted to your players as they need. So like if you have a, a small guard, you would like try to build circumstances where they have to take floaters and you can get as random as you need, as long as you are capable of t- micro targeting the circumstances that are most beneficial for their game. So like if you have a guard who gets, you know, W, so like double under, they, the big goes under and the guard goes under on pick and roll. He's going to face that circumstance all the time. And you need to rep the solutions in a way that is pressurized. Because if you're just like, oh yeah, they're going to go under, you have to shoot it every time. That's not necessarily going to work because it's not necessarily always the solution. But by building a game where they have to find their own solutions with appropriate reactions, is going to allow them to find counters for a circumstance that they will certainly face in the game. And while there are, you know, circumstances that are more broad, but for like young guards, that's a thing they face a lot. So I think that there isn't a level of weirdness. It's just about what level of effects you get and how much buy-in you have. Because like you can, you could have the best drill in the world. You could have the best you know, concepts in the world. But again, if you have nobody who will buy into the things you're selling, either because you don't have the the backup because you're not particularly convincing because you don't you, you seem apathetic whatever like high school kids you know smell out um unenthusiasm very quickly um and if you're like hey look just try it like again i've had i've pitched weird things to high school like to to some of my high school players i'm like i want to try this drill and then like after like 10 reps i'm like i actually hate this this is a terrible idea and they're like okay cool and then other times i've been like i don't really like this can we try it and then that like it becomes a staple of what we do so i think that it's about the buy-in you get. It's about the uh, the relationship it has to the, to the specific uh, circumstances that they have, and also like 
how minimal or maximal the approach is. And I love the idea of, first of all, implementing randomness, but doing so in a way where, like in some of the examples that we've talked about, you give the offensive team information that the defensive team doesn't have, but specifically uh, you also give the the defensive team information the offensive team doesn't have. Like the the example you gave about your dribbling, if you go behind the back, you're going to see a double and that rule may change next time. I think not only does that cause the the player you're training or or the team you're training to have to not just assume a solution, but like genuinely actually generate a new solution or at least a solution they've used before in real time. But also you do get some of that buy-in because like just straight up, like the idea of a game-like situation where the attack has a plan, the defense has a plan and neither one knows what the other team's plan is like that's fun. And that implements buy-in like that gets you buy-in in a way that gets more out of the drill, at least in my opinion, like that's an experience we always had in soccer. If you can gamify the drill, but make it situation specific in a way where you're, you're teaching real skills, but you're doing so in a way that like the, the players themselves don't necessarily know what your goal is. Or even if they do, like they don't know exactly the the fine details of your goal and why you built it this way. Like, I think that's a great drill to me. And th- those are always the drills I liked the most when I played. Yeah, like um, like we've talked a lot about me and you about rondos, um, the, the soccer drill. And like the difference between um, like some of the like some of the, the drills with like ancillary focus or primary focus. So like you can have drills that do a thing like, you know, if you're sending random doubles or um or you know it's a it's a shooting drill but it's not actually a shooting drill it just has an ancillary effect that that makes shooting very pressurized um you can always alter those depending on how you feel and like these these drills with with like um randomized perception act, action action coupling so like if you have drills where it's like you know you do two crossovers then pass you will eventually reach a cap where that player is so good at it that it's not challenging anymore but if the player doesn't necessarily know how they're going to be challenged in this drill like okay it's seven on five. You don't know that maybe they're told to double when you go left. So you're you're prodding. You're like, okay, I know there's a booby trap here. And I'm trying to figure out where it is. But I also can't like sell out to just do that. I can't just go find the booby trap because I also have to win this drill. Or I'm going to have to do 10 push-ups or, you know, uh, uh, you know, whatever punishment or or, or uh, penalty or whatever. Or like, you know, watch the other team get water and let them talk, to, uh, talk crap to us. Like by having that, that's actually how we process the game is that like, you're not just like, yes, you're solving the pick and roll coverage, but you're also trying to score. Like you could solve every pick and roll coverage. If the goal is not to score, you could just do it. You can figure out how to best, but you still have by prioritizing um, goals and prioritizing valuation within a possession within like what you need to do, what a team needs to do. And like what is actually happening that again, uh, dialectic of, of goals is what allows more translation. Because if you're just doing block shooting, it's like, okay, you catch the ball, you pass it. Like, there's no translation. So either that's, it's a binary. Is it happening? Is it not happening? But by say like, you know, uh, uh, you know, if you're doing pass hockey where you have to do a move and then throw a pass and if the other person can't catch it, you get a point. So you're trying to throw garbage passes and they're trying to catch garbage passes. Um, like suddenly you're worrying about so much more than, like, are you doing it correctly? It's, is this going to work? Is it not going to work? What are they doing? Oh, I can't go out of bounds. Like those are, that mind state is, is what a game feels like. And if you're simply doing block shooting, like, I mean, we could, we could like the reason that Dwight Howard is bad at free throws is because practice free throws don't feel like game free throws. 
Like I've, we've all been there early. They knocked down, like we've seen, you know, Joel Anthony hit 10, 15, 20, 30 threes in a row. But that three does not feel like a game three. And the challenge of gamification, of perception, action, capturing drills, of small sided games is to pressurize practice and force decisions so that every decision feels like a game and thus will make you better. Because our biggest issue is the translation from practice to game and making sure that as much as much of that translates as possible. And currently we're not getting that. And that's why our players are not developing as much as they could. Our players aren't becoming uh, as actualized with how they play. I mean, uh, a, a constant pain, if you follow me on Twitter, is, is me being angry at, at uh, coaches who don't let young bigs make mistakes by like letting them handle the ball. Um, which like, it's a sloppy process. I, I've coached many a young big. There's nothing joyous about those first six months where you're like, all right, so this is a, a DHO get. Sometimes you keep it. Sometimes you don't. They're like, oh, keep it every time. I'm like, no, no, no. If they're open, they're like, how do I decide? I'm like, you're going to mess up a lot. You're going to dribble the ball off your foot and you're going to travel. These are things that are going to happen. I can't like, I have to, we both have to agree. I'm not going to pull the plug on this experiment and you're not going to lose confidence. And if you ingrain the mindset of decision-making of, of bearing this out, I, I think this is why some people have confidence issues is they don't experience failure within their drills. They don't experience pressurization within their drills. Um, and like that, again, knocks on to all these other areas where if you're not experimenting in practices, if you're not experimenting in, in skill development, you're not going to experiment in tactics because you're not going to learn, learn anything new. That big isn't suddenly going to flash that he's the greatest DHO get guy in the world. So you're not going to run an offense that maybe, you know, features around it. Or maybe you learn that, you know, you're really skinny gangly guys, the greatest, you know, movement shooter in the entire world. You have them under the hoop. And then once you don't have weird players, you don't have weird front office decisions. And like we have this knock on effect from an anti-experimentation because we all don't want to look funny. We don't want to try new things because new things are awkward and, and they feel bad at first. But then like being bad at something is the first step to being good at something. Wisdom from Jake from Adventure Time. I think I also think, wisdom from Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters, who I'm pretty sure was like the first step of becoming the Foo Fighters was getting into a garage and sucking at making music or something to that suit. But yeah, I, I love that quote. That's fantastic. And something that you told me, I don't even remember how long ago it was, but it's stuck with me since we talked about it, is that if you can design a drill that makes an NBA player, like NBA players are good as fuck. Like they're all incredibly good. Like you said, you can go to warmups early and watch Joel Anthony hit 33s in a row. Like that dude's not shooting in games. There is something going on there. So if you can design a drill that makes an NBA player uncomfortable for a reason that has a targeted goal and they have to maybe experience some failure, um, one, you're ensuring that like failure is a case that they're familiar with and won't be deterred by. And two, like you're you're actioning towards the goal of development that you were shooting for in the first place if your drill is designed in a way that gets that result. And if it's not, like the the failures on the failure is acceptable for the coach too. Like you're not gonna design the perfect drill the first time you run it. You might decide that day that you don't like how it's run and you want to change the way that you're running it. Um, you know, flip a variable one way or the other, uh, change a, a tiny little thing. So I think if every it is so hard because it's the opposite of the the human experience and what we all seek in in our uh development. We would love to all just shoot straight up and for development to be a linear process, but it's not. There are ups and downs and and you can see that in any very public development ex experiment like NBA, you know, um basketball skill development. So it's it's just amazing how far we still have to come, I think, in terms of how we develop these drills and how we attack skill development. But even the gains that we've seen, like the clip that I 
had in my field piece that you sent me of Trey Young, like catching garbage passes and shooting immediately after them. Like there are so many different ways that we can attack the core of what makes skill development difficult and the psychological under, underpinnings of why it's difficult. Um, and it's just going to be like awesome to see how this goes in, in the next 10, 20 years, because progress is coming so fast now with, like you said, and like we talked about earlier in this episode, um, the closing or ideally the closing of the gaps between all these different groups that have so much different expertise to offer. You are the best at setting up for an outro ever. Wasn't that amazing PD? Yeah. Like um, he does that every single episode. And it makes my job so easy. I'm actually uh, blushing. <laughs> uh, well, the reason I gassed you up there is because now we're going to break you down. Um, folks, we got to 33 reviews, past 32. And now it is time for Evan to reveal. You know about this, right, PD? Yes. Okay, excellent. It's time for Evan to reveal three terrible takes. Well, our loyal listeners worked hard for this moment, and I'm here to give them what they all came for. Um, It was a long and painful process. It wasn't that long. I have plenty of terrible takes. Uh, It was a painful process to think about these, but I learned a lot from it. And there's one in particular that I've been like, constantly thinking about and learning from um, and trying to calibrate how it's going to affect my evaluation process in the future. So I will point out when I talk about that one, but the first terrible take I have is that when Jimmy Butler was traded to the Minnesota Timberwolves for the pick that became Lowry Markkinen, Zach Levine, and Chris Dunn, um, and the Bulls gave up a pick too, which was just an awful decision. Um, I thought on the day that the Bulls like clearly won the trade. And I know the jury is still out in terms of how um, that trade went, considering Jimmy is not with the Timberwolves anymore um, and considering that trading for stars is hard and the value you get back generally isn't that good. So what scale are we grading on? I think it's pretty fair to say, given how things have gone for the Bulls and since that trade occurred, um, that was not a good take on my part. So that was a good one. Any, any thoughts, questions, or concerns about that one from you guys? I'd love to hear your feedback. I think nobody won that trade. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's true, but like the the I was so like adamant that the Bulls had had won it. And, you know, this is classic uh <laughs> uh judging a trade before any of the players have played for their new team's behavior from um an immature version of me. Uh, I definitely have learned from this. Um star trades are hard and and you should not do them if you don't have to, but yeah, that was that was a good time. Um wait, what what did you what were you excited about there? Was it uh, was it Dunn, Levine? Were you really high on marketing? Like, uh, wasn't really high on marketing. Actually, I thought that was a weird. I wasn't super into the draft weeds at that time, but I was like, we drafted a guy who's just a shooter, and then everyone was like, "Oh no, you're wrong! Like, he can do all these things in transition. Look at how he's playing under Fred Hoiberg." And it turns out that actually that part I think I was right about. I was pretty excited about Zach Levine, and I was really excited about Chris Dunn. I actually wanted the Bulls to. Um, draft Chris Dunn, like like trade Jimmy, or not trade Jimmy, but like draft Chris Dunn any way possible. I think I was interested in him the year before. And so once he got drafted by the Timberwolves, once he'd played a year there, even though the early returns were not as good as I thought they would be, 
I was like big pumped about Chris Dunn. So that for me, those two, um, and the fact that we had picked a direction, like just the painful process of watching the three alphas was like, okay, it's time to move on for me. Um, but yeah, that was kind of what had me excited. Only Jimmy Butler won that trade. Everybody yep, and- else Everybody else lost, like every team and player. I think like, Zach didn't really lose, but Zach is, you know, officially a part of the Bulls in a, in a very specific way. But like only Jimmy won. Yep. And to be honest, like that's a result I'm happy with um, as I've become less and less attached to uh, fan brain and and rooting for laundry. Um, as much as I still love my Bulls, I'm, I'm you know, not quite thinking about the game like that anymore. Um, I am real happy. Still a huge supporter of players and Jimmy's one of my favorites. Um, I am real happy that he won that trade. Um, but I will go ahead into my that one. That one wasn't that bad for me but um it was it was not a good take um the second take i'd like to highlight um and i'll save the the one that has really had me like staying up at night um for last uh the second take i want to highlight is i had deandre ayton over luka Doncic in that draft um i it's it was honestly like pretty inconsistent process for me because I am a person who generally highly rates uh, centers with technical skill, um, especially like a high level of passing ability. And DeAndre Ayton was much more like a dominant physical presence, I think, than my usual type of like number one big prospect. And like Luca is so clearly like my type of player and in my in my alley that I don't know how I, I messed that one up, really. But like uh, that was a thing that happened. And I have I have learned from that. Anyone else in here have uh, DeAndre Ayton above Luka Doncic? I bet I'm the only one. I've never been really into the draft, but I still remember. I think I said this on a previous pod, but I remember the clips of Luka floating around and just being enamored. And like, there is no one going above him for me. I was like, this guy is magical. This is incredible. This Ayton guy's a chump. Like, Luka is clearly <laughs> it. This Ayton guy's a chump. Um, I think everyone who is a part time draft person, uh, like me and sounds like Cody uh, got really lucky with Luca. We just saw a few cross court passes and we're like, yep, that's great. Perfect. And then turns out he's the absolute actualized version of everybody's idea who watched a half of FIBA like me. Um, so I can't really take credit for having Luca over Aiden. I just saw a few glimpses, uh, you know, a-, a la like the Twitter clip propaganda that we were talking about before and was like, okay, that's enough. Um, so I can't say that my process was great, but I did have him over Aiton. I think Aiton for me was such a physically imposing prospect. And this is not usually something I do. Like you don't expect guys who are super physically or like physically dominant and rely on that at the college level to take the step up and still maintain that physical dominance. But I thought it was going to take Luca. I I thought he was going to be good. Like I still had an all-star like type grade on him or whatever. Um, but I thought it was going to take Luca a little bit longer to hit his stride in the NBA than it actually did. Like he skyrocketed soon. And I actually thought Aiton was going to handle the physicality of the NBA and have a simplified role in a way that would allow him to produce earlier. And given the way that rookie contracts work and the valuation behind them, I just assumed that like on a first contract, Aiton might be a better bet than, than Luca was. That was a mistake. And, and it's not because I didn't foresee Luca hitting his stride that early, but I misevaluated the traits that allow you to make that step up and make that transition a little bit more smooth, I think. Yeah, um, I had that Luca was like dramatically better than Michael Porter Jr. when they were both like 14 or 15. And I will have savored the uh, the 
how much people hated that opinion uh, around like EYBL circles being like, because like, you have to understand how good Michael Porter Jr. was as like an underclassman in high school. And yet, like this kid who could barely dunk. And I was like, yeah, Luca's better. Um, the thing I will say is that Luca got better between the Real Madrid thing and the Euros. Like he was like that last two months, he was like very, very just extraordinarily good. And then he got to the Euros, he was just better. And so I feel like there was a quick, you know, you sort of have some guys who take the pre-draft process and you're like, okay, like maybe he got a little bit better. And then you have guys like Donovan Mitchell or Luca, where it's like, oh no, this is a different player. And so, yeah, it was an early confirmation, not that like Aiden's, you know, like a scrub, but like, I have questions for many people who didn't see it considering like the extreme backlog of Luca Dantras that was available. That being said, uh, DeAndre Aiden in eighth grade did like work in North Carolina in, in a game that is on YouTube and I recommend everyone watch it. It's really fun. I actually didn't know that game existed, but I am definitely going to try to find that because that sounds like a great time to watch. I will roll right into my last take. And this one has kind of kept me up at night sometimes in terms of how I evaluate prospects and uh, specifically how I evaluate the role that work ethic and mentality play in development and how how much to value the information we don't know we don't or we know we don't have, um, especially background information. So I had a second round grade on Colin Sexton in his draft year. And um, I know people were pretty swayed by the, what was it, three on five game. And I, f- I thought that was just a total gimmick. Uh, I was like, okay, he's just you know, like putting on a show. The, the, he can't lose here, essentially. Like um, the odds are stacked against him. Anything will look look good here for the most part, as long as he does what Colin Sexton does. Um, I think I... Uh, um, undervalued the background that I heard from others who actually have sources. And I think this is uh, part of why it keeps me up at night is because I'm, even though I'm further into draft discourse and scouting as a whole now, I still don't have the ability to get a lot of that background that teams have when they interview prospects and things of that nature. But I think I undervalued the amount of information I really did have. And some of that information, like being on tape, like how he played in the three on five, that he was just an absolute like fucking dog. And he wasn't going to like accept failure. Like he was going to continue to grind out. He was going to work hard on his, his uh, inadequacies and and the things he was not quite as good at. Um, And like, I guess I've always kind of had, um, a sort of a bias against like score first guards who mostly score, especially if they have really bad court vision and Sexton's court vision still isn't that great to me. Like I still don't think he sees the floor very well. I think he's wired to score for sure, but the Cavs, even like with the, I guess pretty inefficient and not ideal development environments they put around Sexton, like Sexton has been way better than I anticipated. And it was like, I was still right about like his ability to see the court. So that one for me, just like, how much I value background information now, if I can get it, I do put some stock into that. I don't put a ton of stock, like if, or, or I don't put too much stock, I hope. If um, a guy is like a super hard worker, but I just don't see the way his game translates and I don't see a clear path to how he gets better at the things that that are weighing him down and his ability to produce uh, in a game setting down, um, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna value that work ethic as highly. But like, if there, if I see the, 
the skills that he needs to improve as as things that can be improved and i know that this player is a hard worker like i'm going to give a slight modifier and assume that those skills will be even easier fixed for that player i suppose any anyone else have sexton takes i i okay so i think that part of the reason why people were out on sexton um is that the language that we have is not particularly like we have like levels of hard worker and like that doesn't describe Colin Sexton. Colin Sexton belongs to a tier of like that's just for like 10, 15 guys like this that I would just say are basketball psychos. Um, and they're people who need to be told they can't work out anymore. So like Kawhi famously on his like uh second contract, the Spurs were like, in the summer you can only work out three times a day. Like no more four or five a days. Like Zach Levine is another like dude who just like will not like he refuses to leave a gym. He is a guy in the summer who's in the gym for like nine hours. And um, I've just come to terms that like there are guys who are like straight up basketball psychos and like they're just not going to be bad. And however like low I am on their collective skills, like Sexton's EYBL run, he's just like making shots that human beings shouldn't make. And just like looking at, you know, I mean, he told Penny Hardaway his son was trash to, like it during a game. Um, he told multiple people, like, I'm going to hit the next three threes and win this game. Like, just in the crowd, just like, I'm going to hit the next three threes. Just not, like, in a screaming way. Just like, this is what is going to happen. And then he would do it. Um, there's That's just, like, that's not a person who's mentally well, but for, like, in a specific way that's going to make him awesome. Um, and, like, I just... I don't think that basketball discourse had evolved to the point to be like, look, you have to understand there are people who are hard workers and there are people who are pathological. And uh, which is probably like the, the a, a more sanitary term for it. But like, yeah, he's basketball pathological, and so like I don't think that unless somebody was like, no, no, like it's like that. There, there's any way to really explain guys like that. And like that's what I'm looking for now, right? Because I think I I did hear that he was a hard worker. I just kind of threw that information out because you hear that kind of you can hear that, and sometimes it's fluff, and sometimes it's not, and it depends who it comes from, but when you hear it from enough sources, and you hear, like, the degree to which he is a a hard worker, a dog in the gym, like, I think I should have put a little bit more stock into the amount I was hearing that, like, where there's smoke, there's fire, and where there's a bright light, like, the fire is probably strong, so, um, yeah, I, I, I misevaluated Sexton, and so now, I'm always kind of wondering, like, on a broader scale, what information do I not have? Why do I not have it? And how valuable is that information? And that kind of speaks to what you said of like, I'm trying to just be less confident about every player with every coming year. Like there is no reason to be like staunchly against Colin Sexton in his second year in the NBA. Um, I think it was actually our, the undying optimism of Mark Schindler that had me take a second look at some of Colin Sexton's uh, games at the end of last season when we were all just kind of reviewing stuff when there was no basketball. Um, and I'm like, you kind of see, you kind of see something there, just like the d- the degree of difficulty. Uh, the fact that he was having like 40 plus percent from three down the stretch, two years in a row. It's like, okay, at some point this isn't just a fluke. Um, so I guess Colin Sexton, if you're just, applying heuristics to him is going to really not be great in some ways. Like PD, I know your heuristic is show me the easy and, and every shot looks difficult, but a lot of them go in anyway with Colin Sexton. All right. So up next, once we get to 48, I know I said 64 one podcast ago, 
but we, we need to get to those takes of Cody sooner. Um, once we get 48, we're just looking right towards the next one. Uh, once we get 48 reviews, Cody will share three of his bad takes. Um, PD, do you have, do you have an awful take you want to grace us with before uh, we wrap this up? Yeah, this is kind of a recurring theme now as we're asking all our guests about their, their best freezing cold takes. Okay, does it have to be basketball? Because I mean, like, no. I, okay, um, I'm trying to think of just like the the, the like uh, we've been talking uh, in a group chat about food a lot, and I'm trying to think of what my worst food take is. Like, that's not like you know, pineapple is good on pizza because like that's an opinion for cowards, right? Because um, it's good, like it's just universal. But like something that's really oh, okay. Here's here's one that I firmly believe in is that like. I have a ranking of uh, like our replacement ranking for food, which is like how good I can make it at home with versus how much effort. And that leads to like how much I order it. And my conclusion is that Italian food has the highest replacement level because like most Italian food, like restaurants that you go to are about as good as you can make it home with like 20 minutes of effort. I agree with that. I love that take. I, yeah, I feel like, I feel like a sucker. When I order a pasta dish. No free ads, but there's a meal kit delivery service that my partner and I subscribe to. And we refuse to order pasta for this very reason. It takes like 15, 20 minutes. It's cheap to buy at the store. It's easy to make. The techniques are pretty simple. And it's going to taste about the same whether you order it from like a a good restaurant, you know, a pretty solid restaurant, or you make it at home if you're a pretty good cook. So, yeah. I I don't even think Um, Italian restaurants. Yeah, Italian restaurants um, on the, like, I mean... To put this in the language of takes, Italian food can be the most violently mediocre of foods. Yeah, no, I agree, and I think it's it's kind of a kind of a high floor, low ceiling proposition to bring it back to basketball. Um, perhaps it's like uh, it's like going with. Uh, uh, <laughs> God damn it! Don't get yourself in trouble, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to like think of a recent draft pick that's like that. But now Sadiq Bay, it might be better than Italian food. Okay, here's it's like the Cory Maggetti. You get generally the same experience regardless of situation. Cory spaghetti, one could say. Oh my god, that's so good. All right. We can <laughs> close it up here. That's the that's the peak. That's it. We're done. That was our greatest peak part two. Well, folks, thank you for sticking with us. This was honestly a super fun podcast. Um even though I felt slightly over my head sometimes, but you know, the theme is expose yourself to uncomfortable situations, whether in basketball or in life. So enjoy the rest of the season. Uh, we got playoffs coming soon. And as our boy Mark Schindler always says, enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs> <laughs>